Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. Joining me, Gretchen and Bill, welcome to the show. Hello there. Hi. Good to be diving in this week. Uh, Bill, you know what? We've had some listener questions. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to change your name. Not happening. Oh, man. Okay. No, you know, just to address that confusion, there actually are two Bills, and that is correct. I do not have multiple. Per- well, I'm not going to say I don't have multiple personalities, but I am not <laughs> playing with multiple personalities here today. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, we've got a good show coming up for you this week. We're going to be doing a Q&A in the second segment, and we're going to be diving into some interesting news topics in the first. And we invite you to go ahead and reach out. Userfriendly.show is the place where you can ask your questions, post your comments. That's how we program. So check it out there. All right. With no further ado, what do we have in the news? Ubo sues to stop Disney Fox Warner Brothers sports streaming plan. Yeah, interesting thing. We actually just covered this when this was announced recently. And Fubo is a online service, kind of like a Hulu or something, that specializes in streaming sports. And the concern they have here is that this is going to create a monopoly where they will be shut out of the market or charge so much for the sport content that they're not going to be able to compete with this powerhouse from these big guys. Now, some interesting things is that when you look at this, you know, it can be claimed that a lot of other networks have sports and that type of a thing, and they do, but the focus is on what some of the specialization is going to be and what's going to be able to be out there. And some of the things that they're talking about, they have not named this venture yet, but they're talking about having special features where you can choose the camera view you want to say a football game or something of that nature, which are some unusual things that are not in the mainstream, at least not yet. So we'll see where this actually ends up and see if FUBU comes out victorious. These court cases tend to drag on, but the government is looking at this to see if this may be a monopoly. And when we know what they decide, we will let you know. Cops issue warning after bewilderment over viral video of man crossing the street in Apple Vision Pro. Yes. Now, this is an interesting thing to think about. I You know, we talked about this when we were reviewing the Pro. There's uh, lovers and haters, it seems like, on this device now. Some people love it. Some people are returning theirs and, you know, say run and run quickly. Mm -hmm. My feeling on it was when I tried it, it seemed to work well for what it was. And as I've always said, I just didn't feel like it was worth $3,500. But they did the job. But we are seeing some issues. We talked about one person driving their Tesla with the headset on. And some other things like that, someone riding a bike. Well, the latest one, this happened in San Diego, was the police were apprehending somebody who, from my understanding, was armed, and it was pretty obvious what they were doing. And an individual just strolled through the police tape, came down the street, didn't see any of it, and walked right past them, and then out into the street in front of them. Now, what's interesting to me about something like this is this system has the ability to do augmented reality. So in other words, you see what's in the environment around you, and then what you're doing with it is superimposed on top of that environment. But it would seem like this individual was most likely in virtual reality, walking around public streets, but in a completely different universe, and didn't see any of this type of thing. So that's where the term bewilderment comes from. I I don't know. What do you think? It's just not a wise thing to do. 
<laughs> yeah, that's kind of seems to be where they're going. And, you know, with any new technology, you're going to have situations where it's not used in the intended or the right way. But this could be an extreme safety issue. Let's just hope the pilot of the plane that I'm flying on in a couple of weeks isn't wearing their VR headset while they're supposed to be flying the plane or something like that. That uh, <laughs> could definitely get interesting. Yep. Wise Breach allowed 13,000 customers to peek into other people's homes. That sounds awful. Yeah. Nothing scary about that, right? So, <laughs> Oh, no, not at all. Sarcasm yeah. sign. <laughs> and again, like we just said in the previous story, with any new technology, you need to exercise a little common sense on some things, but also some of this would be out of your control, but to just know what's going on. And connected security cameras, like many connected devices, work by taking an image of wherever you have the camera, whether that's in your home or, you know, whatever. And then they send it to a server on the internet somewhere where it's processed and stored. And that's how you're able to get on from your phone and see things remotely and all of that kind of stuff. Now, this is a very necessary thing in certain circumstances because a device in your home like a camera would not have enough computing capability to be able to do this on its own. And if they put it in, it would be cost prohibitive. The other side of it is just the ability to get remote access requires it being accessible online. So if other products like this, like Ring is, for example, if you have your Ring app and view the cameras remotely, that's how that works. But it's important to also note, again, that it is storing this information remotely. And when that happens, there's always the potential that someone can get into these files. And that's what happened to Wise. And what's gone on here is there was a glitch and a number of people were able to get in and see the thumbnails from other people's cameras that weren't supposed to have access to it. And in some cases, even access and play the video files. So you really don't want that in a private space in your home or in your home at all, really, and that kind of a thing. So this is a situation where there isn't a lot that you can directly do anything to stop it other than not use the equipment. The only other way to do it and keep it completely private would be to get what would be kind of an older design of a system where you have the recorder mechanism for it in your home or your office, wherever it is, and it's closed circuit. So the cameras go to that and they're recorded on that and they never get online. Of course, you wouldn't have the ability to access it remotely and you would have to buy a lot more equipment to make that to work, which is the downside of that. But if you're plugged in and online, no matter what it is, it's just to be aware that these type of things can happen. And there's been a lot of concern over privacy because we are seeing cameras everywhere. I mean, the front doorbell cameras and in people's houses and other spots that you wouldn't before. And when you get really creepy and in some cases illegal cameras that are placed that people don't know about in places like changing rooms and stuff, it's definitely something that can be abused. And since a lot of these cameras are completely wireless now, there's no need to hook it up to anything. You just put it somewhere and if you have a battery for however long the battery goes, or if you can plug it in and hide it, people aren't going to know that it's there. So, you know, abuse of this type of technology is around. Now, one thing where this goes is Ring originally was set up so that law enforcement could access Ring videos without the permission of the person that recorded them as they wanted to. And Amazon has recently rolled that back. The police can still get to videos if they have a subpoena or if they have permission of the person that recorded it. And I'm someone that supports law enforcement. It's not that, but I do want to know that I have control over video that, you know, I've taken and that it's not going to just get 
put out there somewhere and, uh, you know, turn up online or be used in a way that I'm not even aware of it. So I can understand where that would be going from that. Now, um, you know, for security, now I know Gretchen, you're, you're selling a house and you've got ring cameras set up on that for security and that type of thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, use it from that standpoint. Are you comfortable with this or do you see a concern here? What do you mean? I mean, I, uh, for being filmed or using the, the material? Not using it, but being filmed. Being filmed and not knowing that you're being filmed. Oh, I wouldn't like not knowing. Um, but, you know, the cameras that I have in the house that I'm selling, they're very obvious. You walk into the room, you can see them. They're not hidden. And they're not there to spy on the person. They're there for security. Yeah, and that's a, that's a huge difference. I'm not saying you're concealing cameras. Just, you know, but is it a concern that somebody might? I'm not I guess getting. that's where I'm going with that. You know, okay, well, let me give you an example of this. Um, when security, when this kind of thing came out, security cameras that worked in this way, there was a device, uh, we actually covered it on the show a few years ago, that looked like a um, smoke detector. First alert oh, smoke that detector. One. Yes, I remember yeah. that. Branded, uh, looks just like any first alert smoke detector you would buy, except that it is full of cameras and not a smoke detector. Um, in fact, I think it might actually still be a smoke detector. It just had cameras in it. So we were doing mm-hmm. some research and I sent an email to First Alert with a picture of it. And I said, is this a you know legitimate profit product? Because they're using their brand and it was for sale on Amazon. So it wasn't like you went to some back room somewhere to buy it. And I got a, the response to that was very interesting. First Alert, first of all, said that they would never make a product like that. It's not theirs. I think they did take some steps to get it taken off of Amazon because it was something that was certainly could have damaged their brand. But at the end of the day, I, that's where I'm asking the question is, is this something that we need to be concerned about? And that might be more of a 10,000 foot question. I'd love to see our listeners response to some of this too. So I'm going to just throw this out to you, everybody. Are you concerned about secretly being recorded? And do you think that there should be consequences more than there are for that? German space commander warns Russian nuclear weapon could destroy global commons. Nobody would survive. This is something we covered uh, previously. And basically what this is about is there is intelligence that's saying that Russia would like to launch a satellite that's capable of destroying other satellites. I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but that's what the idea is. And the Kremlin has come out in a statement saying that they are not doing this, which considering their history probably means that they are. It's hard to know for sure. But the question becomes, this is a concern any way you look at it, because it wouldn't matter what they aim their weapon at. It would end up destroying satellites, whether they're they're Russian or Chinese or American or European or whatever. It's going to end up destroying all of that, which would take out global communications, weather satellites and everything else. So it is kind of an all or nothing thing. So as this starts to become more of a focus and something that could actually be possible, there's starting to be a lot more concern and kind of taking it seriously. Now, my understanding is nothing like this has been launched. It's something that's been talked about. So I think that if it was to become something where it's going to happen, it would need to be addressed. But at least right now, it is definitely something we should be thinking about. Grandfather satellite ERS-2 due to fall to Earth as space debris. So ERS-2 was a cutting-edge observation platform when it was launched back in 1995. A lot of the technologies we're using now were new when this uh, when this went out. Why is it that they're 
calling technology made in the early 90s grandpa. I have an issue with that. I mean, it seems like the 60s should be more grandpa. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so it ended operations in 2011, which is actually a pretty long run for a satellite. Right. And it's going to take a fiery plunge into the atmosphere. Don't you love it when they have the drama in these things sometime this week? So. Uh, the ESA, European Space Agency, is saying that most of it will burn up, and the if it doesn't, if it hits you on the head, well, you're just having a bad day. Don't buy a lottery ticket. C'est la vie. Um, <laughs> c'est la vie, yes, it is. Though <laughs> um, what they're really saying is that it's very likely that if there was something that survived, it would land in the ocean, which is probably the case. And they are also saying that nothing that would come through is radioactive or toxic. So that's good. So, you know, we were just talking about what would happen if they nuked all the satellites, but in normal operations, these do have their lifespan. And generally speaking, they will either deorbit like this one is doing or just end up being space junk. A lot of times they push them out further in orbit. And there are operations now to try to clean up this stuff because without somebody going off the rails and creating a problem, there's still the issue of there's a lot of stuff in orbit now that shouldn't be there. And eventually it could cause a problem. The law of averages show. Yeah. So anyway, this is something, though, that was launched a lot of the technology that we're using now. So it's very interesting to see kind of the end of the life on this. Uh, Some of what it did was to observe the ice sheets, weather stuff, stuff dealing with climate change was on there, temperatures of the ocean and so on. Apple says to stop putting your wet phone in rice. Mm. Aw. That's a bummer. (laughs) (laughs) so what do you do when you accidentally get your phone drop it in you know a puddle of water or something and one of the things that has been suggested although i've never been able to actually get this to work is to put it in rice the idea being to try and dry it out and where that comes back from probably is that the method was suggested as far back as 1946 as a way to maintain your camera a camera at that era if it got wet the thing of it is is this doesn't seem to work very well and what's interesting about this is the changes on these kind of devices now from even just a few years ago when if you dropped your phone in liquid it would most likely stop working and while that can still happen an iphone as a for example will give you a liquid uh, liquid detected alert on your screen so they're suggesting if that happens don't put it in rice turn it off unplug it and then Gently against your hand with the connector facing down, tap it to remove excess liquid, leave it to dry for at least half an hour, and then if they seem to be completely dry, try charging the device again. If the attempt fails, try the process again and do it later. I would suggest just personal opinion from working with electronics that if this happens, do go through the process of unplugging it, turning it off, and trying to get the excess water out, but I would leave it for more like 24 hours. Yeah, same here. You know, just mm-hmm. to give it a chance to to dry out completely. Well, if you think about it, it depends on the climate you live in. If you live in a, a desert climate where it's really dry, it might evaporate. But if you're living in like the Pacific Northwest, it's probably not going to dry that quickly. Yeah, what do you and think? That's, that, well, no, that's something to consider. Higher humidity environment, or, or like say you're living in Florida, you know, or somewhere. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would work within those type of a thing. So the best thing is try not to get your phone wet. But of course, these things happen. And uh, for a long time, smartphones and other technology have had ways that the manufacturer can tell if it got wet. There's stickers that will change color if exposed to water, stuff like that. But 
having it go to this extent now is pretty new. Now, there's two other steps on the recommendations here that definitely I think would go without saying, but we're going to say it just because. Um, number one is don't attempt to dry your device using an external source or compressed air. So in other words, don't get the hairdryer or heat gun and try <laughs> to dry it out or put it in the microwave. That's the other one I've seen. Oh, you're um, kidding. <laughs> yeah, these these will not work. Um, if you put it in the microwave, you might get a light show, but you'll never have your phone work again. And as far as the other ones, the, the, the there's videos of this online. I'm not making this stuff up. Okay. Uh, somebody had a heat gun. So this is something that goes hotter than a hairdryer. It's usually used for uh, heat yeah. shrink and other things. Yeah. And attempted to use that to dry the phone. Well, it did dry the device and it gave this screen a nice little warp. Uh, I think it could have rolled up after that. And then the other one is don't insert a foreign object, such as a cotton swab or paper towel into the connector. All that's going to do is break it. That's not going to help you dry anything. And unfortunately, if you get your phone wet and it doesn't dry up and start working again properly, you're probably going to need to get it repaired um, by somebody that knows how to deal with these type of things. Water is an enemy of electronics. And now that our phones and devices tend to be a lot more water resistant, we have a little bit more of a buffer with that, but you still don't want to, you just keep it away from water. And if it accidentally happens, exercise some common sense, let it dry out and then hope it'll work. But uh, some of these other things are just not a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Critical infrastructure software maker confirms ransomware attack. Now that, that, that sounds really vague. Do they explain this yes. a little better? And this is one of these things where this is a ransomware attack that unless you're working in the industry, you're probably never going to have even heard of this company. Uh, the company's name is PSI Software SE. They're in Germany. And they make software that is basically used in other systems, production, logistics, processes, that type of a thing. So it's very possible that you've worked with their software, but you wouldn't have known it. And this is one of the issues. We saw this big time year before last where hackers will get their ransomware into something that is a subset of a software distribution stream. So in other words, software that this company makes is used in other things like Windows, maybe, or whatever. So that when their software is distributed, it actually infects all of these other systems. And that's where this type of attack comes from. Is there anything you can do to protect yourself against it? No, not really. All the stuff that we talk about, you know, keeping your software up to date, they'll get an update out to fix it, that kind of thing is always a good idea. But in this particular set of circumstances, this is something that is usually completely outside of the end user's control. and. It's one of those things we're covering it just to kind of bring awareness to it. But the bad guys are coming up with a lot more creative ways to try and get into things they shouldn't. And especially with the state of the world right now, this is becoming more and more critical. It's always been that they're after your money, but other things, shutting down communications, infrastructure, power grids, that type of thing can become a real possibility. So it's a situation where a lot of different moving parts are involved in computers nowadays. And if one of those parts is the weakest link in the chain, it can cause these kind of problems. Justice League Crisis on Infinite Earth Part 2 trailer released. Yes, so um, the trailer's out. Actually, I watched it. It's interesting. And uh, boy, talk about drama here. Returning for the universe-destroying crisis. Our Darren Crisis Superman and Earth 
to uh, Superman Stana Haddock. I apologize if I mispronounced Wonder Woman's name and so on. And they've got a lot of problems. So they're bringing the, as they put it, best superheroes in the universe. This is DC. So I would have some argument with that to uh, solve this problem. (laughs) And I'm sure I'm going to get some argument back for that comment. Uh, Anyway, so we're seeing Justice League, uh, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, The Flash, Green Lantern, and so on. So you have a lot of superheroes and Batman involved here. And are they going to be able to stop an unstoppable antimatter Armageddon? We shall see. Maybe they need some. You know, personally like speaking, Mr. if they want to Freeze sell more comic books, up. I think they're going to solve the problem. Oh, was that? okay. <laughs> I said maybe they need Mr. Freeze to show up. Okay. I think, well, that would be, you know, that actually would certainly change things. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm all for that. I think I would be much more into Batman again if we saw a good Mr. Freeze. Yeah. Some of these I other agree. villains are fine, but we need Mr. Mm-hmm. Freeze. Well. Now we got something else to talk about. Webb tw- Telescope makes unexpected find in outskirts of our solar system. So is this a freezy topic or is this a warm topic? It is a little bit of both. So the Webb Telescope has brought us a lot of just amazing new things that we didn't know. And it's disproving a number of theories, which is kind of interesting to see how that's going and proving other things. But what they're talking about here is an area that they call a no man's land. Uh-huh. It's in our solar system, and out there are worlds like Pluto, which, depending on which side of the fence you fall down, is a planet or a dwarf planet or whatever. But in that area, there's a lot of other frozen dead objects that uh-huh. are thought to orbit there. And they're finding evidence that these dead objects are not so dead after all. The Webb telescope is capable of picking up a lot of information, including molecules to be able to see what stuff's made up of. In other words, is there water there, that type of a thing, and certainly heat and cold. And they're finding instances of hot times as they put it in cold places in this area out there, which was totally unexpected. So it's interesting to see. And one of the areas that this works into is the idea of eventual space travel, because if and when we get to that point, it would be nice to not have to carry everything with you, be able to stock up on water and stuff in other places. So if this stuff exists, then, you know, it's very doable. So they're looking at some of these asteroids where there's a a heat source of some kind in the core, and then you have water around it, and then an ice shell around that. Probably goes back to when the solar system started, but it's something cool and something new that we really didn't know existed. Interesting to see what else they find out. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We're going to be back with a Q&A after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Check out our website, userfriendly.show. It's the one-stop place where you can go to ask questions, playback episodes, read articles, let us know what you think. And we were talking earlier, if you have something to talk about and would like to be a guest, well, go to the website because that's where we get most of our guests. Let us know what you want to talk about and then we'll get back in touch with you to set up a time. Also, just an announcement for our listeners who are residents of California. 
The CCPA privacy notice is up on our website for you to look at. You have the ability to opt out there and everything else that you might need to do. Again, that's at userfriendly.show. The information on that is at the bottom of the page. There's also a notice about our do not sell policy, which basically we don't sell. But take a look at it. And if you have any questions, there's a form on there where you can contact us to hopefully get those answers. So we've had a lot of questions come in since the beginning of the year and even before that, but a lot since the beginning of the year. So I thought, let's go ahead and try to answer some of those questions and just see where we can get to with this. This is always a lot of fun. Well, usually. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, So here we go. All right, let's dive right in. What's our first question? What is HIPAA and high tech? All right. Interesting question that's come in actually quite a few times and something that I can speak to a little bit because in my other hat as a programmer, I work a lot with healthcare applications. And these acronyms are thrown around. So, where you may have seen this, if you go to your medical provider and they ask you to sign something called a HIPAA release form or some variation thereof, this is actually a thing that is defined. So, the acronym, let's start there, stands for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. So what that is, is a set of rules on how your healthcare provider is supposed to handle your private information. So in other words, medical charts, uh, things like don't put your customer client name, or I guess would be patient's name on a whiteboard above the check-in counter would be one of those things. And Uh as a programmer that's dealt with this kind of, that's a true story, by the way, as a programmer that's dealt with this kind of stuff, I've seen a lot of different things. And your healthcare information is something that is private. You really don't want it out there. So having a set of rules that govern that is important. I think some of the most wild things, one time I saw a printer that was in a uh, patient waiting room where they were printing out healthcare information for patients. We've got that fixed and removed. And the thing of it is, is from a standpoint of healthcare providers, they do have an enforcement program with this that they can really levy some intense fines. You know, they want to keep it keep it private. And it makes sense. And then the other part of the question is the high tech act. This goes along with HIPAA. This was something that came into being a lot later in 2009. And let's see if I can remember health information technology for economic and clinical health act. That's what the acronym stands for. Somebody really wanted that to spell out high tech. Wow. And (laughs) so they got it. But again, basically what this is, is this works alongside of HIPAA. It encourages investment into technology for managing private records, protected health information and stuff, increases the potential legal liability for noncompliance, provides for more enforcement and gives more framework to be able to do this kind of thing properly. And as healthcare records are pretty much all gone to electronic records, again, having a set of framework and regulations does make sense to make sure that that is handled correctly. And that's what all of this is about. So HIPAA came first, high tech became after that, and all of these things have had updates over the years. All right. What is informed delivery? Is it a scam? And now I have so, a question. Are, are they referring to the U.S. postal stuff? Yes, that is exactly what this is. So okay. that's going to be my question to both of you. Have you guys ever used informed delivery? Yeah. yeah. It, it, it okay. just when 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 I when when we moved, all of a sudden you filled out a form, and then for some reason, all of a sudden you have informed delivery, and so it wasn't yeah. really something I asked for. It just happened, and actually, it's okay. 
What they do is they send you an email and they photograph your mail and they, and and, um, that's what you're going to get in the box that day. So to answer the question through a USPS, no, this is not a scam. Just make sure like Gretchen was saying, if you sign up for it, you do it with the post office and not something else. There have been a few sites out there purporting to be a sign up for this that uh, are there to steal information. So USPS is where you want to go for this. And yeah, I agree with you, Gretchen. I've had this for a while. And what's kind of nice about it is, especially with mail theft, you know what's supposed to be in the mailbox, uh-huh. you know? And if something's missing, you know that it's missing. And another question that come in on this is, no, they don't open your mail. That's not how it works. They just scan the front of the envelope, basically. Yeah. And then you get an image of that uh, daily, if it makes sense to do that, if you get mail daily in your mailbox. The only problem that I've run into this was when I moved. I had an incredibly difficult time changing the address for where the informed delivery was supposed to come from. And I think part of that is so that it makes it much more difficult for somebody to say that they're you and get information on what you get in the mail, because that certainly would be a identity theft white kind of thing. But the people at the post office didn't even know how to change it. We eventually got through it. It just took some doing. But it is not a scam, like we were saying. It is actually kind of a cool thing. It also doesn't cost anything. You can sign up for it. It's free. If someone wants to charge you for it, that's a red flag because it doesn't cost money. Hmm. Is the Nintendo Switch 2 worth the upgrade? So, Bill, I'm going to ask you a question here. Have you messed much with the current Nintendo stuff? Oh, yeah. I have my own Switch. What do you think of it? I enjoy it. It's a pretty nice system that you can play both at home and portably. Yeah. That's my feeling, too, is the fact that it's so if anybody hasn't uh, messed with this, it's basically like Bill just said, both. It has a screen built into it. There's different versions of that, but it's also a console. So you plug it into your HDMI on your television and you have a normal console experience. You unplug it and take it with you. You have a horrible experience. But since it's the same unit, it runs the same software, which is nice. You don't have to have a separate set of cartridges or whatever to make it work. The different versions of it are there's a like an entry-level version where everything's one piece. The higher versions, they have one with an OLED screen that the controllers come off and they're wireless, uh, which is the one I have. I am somebody that has loved the Zelda franchise basically since the ver- first version came out on the 8-bit. So that's the reason I have it. Breath of the Wild, now the new version. But it is actually something, mine, I've dropped it a couple of times. It seems to be very, never broken or anything. And uh, it is kind of nice. The other thing that I like about it, too, is it's a lot smaller footprint than the PlayStation or Xbox. So it doesn't take up as much space in the entertainment console. And it doesn't get as hot, but it seems to work very well. So, you know, from that kind of a standpoint, that's cool. So is Switch 2 worth the upgrade? Well, we can't tell you that because Nintendo just let us know that it's being delayed a year. So getting even a pre-release of it hasn't happened yet. We're looking at it now coming out in 2025. I'm not sure why it's delayed. They've been somewhat cagey on that, just that they pushed it back. And the release date was supposed to be March of this year, so they kind of waited until the last minute to push it back. Maybe it's to fix the thumbsticks. Maybe. Let's hope that that's – if they do, that'd be a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's better to put out a quality product than something, you know, messed up and makes your customers angry. (laughs) Yeah. I totally agree. And the other side of it is Nintendo's history, you know, they have great, I I really like Nintendo's products over the years. My first video game system was an NES and, uh, you know, I've had them since then. They're usually made well. There's been some bummers over the years, but for the most part, it's pretty good. But 
they do seem to have some interesting things. They're certainly out on the edge for controllers. I mean, motion gaming with the Wii was a first of its kind that was absolutely amazing. And then it seems next-gen consoles, They the second one came out with a tablet and a controller, which I am of the camp with a lot of people that didn't seem to really be worth it. Um, yeah, I like the and first your one. It was have been fun. a big deal on the Switch. Yeah, I, you know, it was just like, and then the other side of it was is if you had multiple player games, since only one controller had this thing built in, you were handing off the control unit. It, it just, I don't know, it had its its glitches. But yeah. uh, again, that kind of being the the not so common thing, the common control stick we use today, our control pad, started with Nintendo. Before that, it was the Atari joystick, um, which was fine. And then there were some very other interesting attempts at controllers in the early 80s. I'll just leave it at that, where they did some very strange things. So in any event, we'll let you know as soon as we know. But uh, as we talked about in Tech Wednesday this week, patience is a virtue on this one because we're not going to see it until next year. What is happening with Atari? Okay, so here's a name that's a flashback for anybody that dealt with video games in the late 70s and early 80s. Atari was king. And the Atari VCS or 2600, which are the same thing, just different iterations of it was the console that you would have in your home at that time. And when it came out, it was great. As other stuff started to come out, it became obsolete, but it was still around and they still made software. Well, actually, I was going to say they still made software for it into the 90s. They're still making software for it today. And that's kind of where this goes and where this question comes in, because in the last couple of years, we've been seeing the Atari name again for home consoles. Now they came up with some, I know Bill and you, you and I talked about this and kind of I would say we're lukewarm to it at the very thing. It was yeah. an attempt to be a, a a television console that kind of did everything. It played virtualization versions of the old games, but you, there was also an Atari cryptocurrency. I mean, it did a lot of kind of just unusual things. And uh, what was your opinion, Bill? I, go ahead and recap it because I know yours was about the same as mine. I just, it was so unknown that I just, don't know what it is for and i mean i guess the nostalgia that's probably more of what it's for than anything yeah i think uh i think you're spot on with that but i think there's a little bit of a difference now with what they're doing they've kind of taken a step back and i believe they've discontinued that first i don't even remember what it was called but anyway and now they've come out with a new system that they're calling an Atari 2600 Plus. Now, again, that's familiar because the original one was an Atari 2600. What's different about this is it incorporates a lot of new technology. We kind of have talked about this in the past, I know, but just to recap that, it incorporates a lot of new technology, computer technology. But the one thing that's cool about it is it will actually play the original Atari 2600 and 7800 cartridges. So it has a cartridge slot on it. You can go to a garage sale or, you know, dust off the game in your garage. I would recommend highly cleaning the cartridge if they're 30 <laughs> years old, you know, that kind of a thing before you put it in. But yeah. it will run most, uh, about 95% of the original games. Plus, they're making all kinds of new stuff for it as well. So, you know, already we're seeing this, or at least they're seeing the sales are better, that kind of a thing, because I think people have a connection for it. Now, this is not as powerful as a PlayStation 5, and there is not as much support as the newer consoles in that respect. But its price point and all that kind of stuff does make it where 
I think it has a lot more chance of getting a market share, nostalgia, and other things, because you can do more with it, than their first attempt at this did. The control sticks feel just like the original 2600 sticks, whether that's good or bad. There's different opinions on that. The new ones do employ new technology, but it will, with uh, the right equipment, do the old nine pin um, ones and all that kind of stuff too. So you can use a lot of that. There's paddle controllers. There's all the stuff that we would have had before. But one of the games in that day that was one of my favorites was Super Breakout. I had that on my Atari 5200. And um, there was a version on the 2600, which I really didn't care for. Another one was Pac-Man, which was absolutely ridiculous on the 2600. And some of the new software that's coming out from the old arcade classics actually is the what you would expect for the arcade version. Uh, Super Breakout works the way it was supposed to. Berserk has the voices, Cubert, all that kind of stuff. So they're able to do a lot of what they weren't able to do originally. But the other side of it is, is we're seeing a lot of new games also coming out for this. And it's going to be interesting to see kind of where that goes. If we're going to have some of the big publishers sign on, I don't know. But there's certainly a lot of homebrew coming out that's pretty decent. So just an interesting thing. Am I recommending go out and buy one? No, not necessarily. If you're expecting a PlayStation, Xbox type experience, you're not going to get it. But if you're looking for something that is modern, plugs into your modern television without converters, will play the old stuff, will play some new stuff, and isn't as expensive, maybe it's something definitely to look at and, and play around with a little bit. If anybody out there has played with the Atari 2600 Plus, let us know because I'd love to see what your experience and opinion is on it. Can I run Android apps on Windows yet? I don't know, Bill, you're t- uh, one of our technical. Have you been able to do this? I have had no reason to, but I mean, I guess with the right emulator. When Windows 11 came out, one of the big things was that you were going to be able to run native Android apps on Windows 11. It didn't work when Windows 11 first came out. They have gotten a system in place to do this, but it is quite involved. Uh, You have to set up virtualization, which means you have to have equipment that will support virtualization. Then you go through a process to turn that on. There's several reboots. You have to download a bunch of stuff. But when you do it, you can get Play Store and you can run Android apps. Now, there's been some other things that have been worked on by Google and Amazon to make this process a little bit easier. And I've been playing with this a little bit. I got a prototype. And I will tell you one thing. You haven't lived until you've played Angry Birds 2 on a 32-inch 4K monitor. Okay? (laughs) I mean, it was cool. (laughs) The only problem I had with it, and I think this is just part of the beta version, is it will only work right now with paid Google Workspace accounts. So all of my Android games are through my personal account, which is a Gmail. So I couldn't access the save games and all that kind of stuff. But I think that's just an intermediary thing that they probably will get worked out. But I do have to say, I didn't have to turn on virtualization. I didn't have to do a bunch of weird stuff. It installed and it worked very well. It was just like a native environment, even though it has been virtualized. But So, so I can get my mom they, some of the better uh, solitaire games and puzzle games and play it on her computer? Yeah, and she has a touchscreen, so it actually would work just like the tablet. And I would say, I don't have a touchscreen, so I had to use my ah. mouse. But uh, with the touchscreen, it would be even more like it. So the answer to your question is yes. Cool. And what we're going to do is post a link to the instructions on this on our social media. So instead of trying to sit here and go through it on the air, which wouldn't make sense to do because there is a, a bit of a process, 
but it's not as daunting with a new way to do it. And it does work. All right. That sounds like fun. For family home evening, what is a good tabletop role-playing game? Yeah. And Bill, I think this is one that you and I can both address here. Family home evening, at least from the listener's question, is uh, something from the LDS Church, Latter-day Saints Church, that their families get together once a week and essentially play board games. And role-playing games certainly would make sense for part of this as long as they're appropriate. So Bill, I'm, I know I didn't ask you this question before, so I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, but is there anything that you would recommend that is a family-friendly role-playing game? Well, there's the My Little Pony one. Uh, personally, I still feel that Dungeons & Dragons is, even though some people would disagree with me on that. Um, there are a lot of different role-playing games out there. Um, some of the Grant Hewitt stuff that's really good. Um, we played that like Honey Heist and, uh, Goblin Quest. I mean, they're very quick, very easy games to get into. Plus they're just enjoyable, uh, games. You know, one thing I think too, to kind of talk on that a little bit is many of these games, because it's not really a predefined thing. It's about being creative and stuff so different people are going to use them in different ways so whether it's family appropriate or not depends a lot on who's running the game now some systems are not as family appropriate as others so it's definitely something you would look into but i agree with what you're saying bill even dungeons and dragons has gotten a lot of bad press for it which is why we talk about it but it is a system that i think could be with the right person running it yeah just fine now there's other systems i don't think you would want to play cyberpunk with your eight-year-old and six-year-old I I would not recommend that. Even if you tried to run it in a family-friendly way, it would be difficult. But there are many others that are just fine for this and are actually a lot of fun for this kind of an environment because you're able to socialize. And believe it or not, you don't have to have a screen. Uh, Something that I argue with my group about every so often because they like to use the tablets. But you actually can play and turn the phones off and put them away and be just fine. And it will work. It'll work perfectly. So you don't have to have that. So, yes, they're definitely out there, and Bill's suggestion are some that are good to look at. Are there RPG systems that are better for specific types of people? Yeah, along with this other question, um, I think that would be, I don't know, what a similar answer. So and what, they're, what they're talking about here is this is a group, uh, the uh, listener where this uh, question came from, of seniors. So it was a group oh, of ladies in their 70s, and their kids play uh, Dungeons & Dragons, probably, or, or a game like that, a tabletop, not a card game. And they look at it and thought that it was fun. So are there ones that are geared towards demographics like that? Technically, yes. Technically, no. Um, Dungeons & Dragons itself kind of is geared towards everybody. Yeah. Um, Again, it comes down to who runs the games. Uh, You know, some are more focused towards kids. Some are more focused towards people who like math, like Pathfinder. Um, There's such a wide variety of games out there that it comes down to what are you interested in? What what kind of stories are you interested in telling and sharing with your friends? That makes sense. You know, I think that's the thing all the way around. It requires that creative gene. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And then you can use it in whatever way you want to use it, which is one of the things that's fun, but also makes a tabletop role playing a little more difficult is, is, is just that it's an open world. You can do whatever you want. 
But on the same token, and while there are modules and things to help with this, but the, really when it comes down to it, you do have to take a little time to put the world together and do it right in order for it to function properly. But if you do, it's a lot of fun. And there are a lot of games that don't require that much prep work. Um, like going back to Honey Heist, it's got about a 10-minute prep time, and then you can play for a couple of hours. And it all comes down to what does your group like, what does it not. Like, we switched to 5th edition from Pathfinder because some of us are dyslexic and having problems with math. So, you know, no problem there. And like I said, it just comes down to what you're looking for. Um, There are systems that are so bare bones that you can basically tell whatever kind of story you want from them. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, you know, it's just... It's just a matter of doing a little research, go online, check them out, see the reviews, but absolutely. Okay. Is it possible (laughs) to get rid of OneDrive? Yes. And Gretchen, before you deliver your opinion on that, remember, this is a family-friendly show. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. OneDrive is something that has been part of the Windows operating system since, I think, Windows 7. And basically what it is, is it's an online cloud drive that is built into Windows. And we tend to get a lot of questions about this because it seems like lately it's becoming more invasive. And I'll tell you, I ran into that myself uh, this morning when I was working on our treatment for the show today. I'd opened the previous week, changed it, then I wanted to save it under a new file name. And when I did, it didn't go to the location it opened from. It forced it to OneDrive. And these kind of things are bothering a lot of people because it's Uh like it's trying to force that. And then I had to go back through. And number one, see it and know that it was not going to save in that location. I wouldn't have found the file. So it is possible to remove them. Now, there's a process to do this. Microsoft has it buried on their support site. And I think we'll also go ahead and put this out on our social media if you want to look it up. So uh, a couple of things to note. Uh, OneDrive no longer works with Windows 7 or 8. They discontinued that a couple of years ago. So it's going to be 10 or 11 where you would even still be using this. The one advantage I will say is it does give you a backup, but the disadvantage is, especially if you're not sure how it works, you have no clue, you know, as to exactly what's going on with your files sometimes, and it'll do weird things to try to uh, try to almost force you to put something in a different location than what you would actually want to do. And it's also important to be aware that not just with OneDrive, but any cloud-based service like this, your file is out of your control. It's being stored on a remote server somewhere. You know, so it's just, these are all different things to be able to consider. The security is usually good. I haven't at least heard of some real hack against these things that's happened, but not to the extent of some other things. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's uh, something that some people are wanting to definitely get rid of. It is possible. So like I say, we'll go ahead and put the instructions out there. So if this is something you want to do, you can go ahead and look and go through it step by step. How is the book publishing going? Well, Gretchen, how is the book publishing going? I don't know, Bill. How is the book publishing going? (laughs) (laughs) So if you publish a book, a certain part of it is definitely you need to have some patience. (sighs) We are moving along. Um, (laughs) Right now, they're going through and doing the final, not edit, but formatting. So they have all the material in place, but now they have to make it fit properly into the platform that it's going to go out on. And that's taking a week or two. We're actually expecting to hear an update on that. Uh, probably by about when this show airs. 
and we'll let everybody know when you can go out and buy it. But uh, it's plugging along. We haven't really had any setbacks. We're just waiting for them to do their thing. And really, at the end of the day, this is going to be a lot of fun. And just for anybody that hasn't heard, what we're talking about is a book series Gretchen's working on called Cyberhawk. Uh, Pretty cool. I'm not going to give it away, although we will do a show on it when you can buy it. The first (laughs) book that's going out is kind of a prelude, an origin story, if you will, of where all this comes from. And Gretchen, I know you're working on the first uh, novel in the franchise now, which will be out later. And we'll talk about that, too. So that's where it's at. Well, this is user-friendly for this week. And until next week, this is User-Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2013 to 2024 by User-Friendly Media Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and guests and not this radio station. Please check out userfriendly.show for airtimes and podcasts.